we did it. The calendar has hit October, and that means it really is college basketball season. But if you haven't heard, it's golden time in women's basketball world for Team USA as well. College practice practices have started. Schedules are set. And we're going to go out west and see what all the fuss is about. It all starts right now. You are Locked On Women's Basketball. Your daily podcast on women's basketball. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Happy Monday, friends. It is October 3rd, 2022. I am Missy Heydrich, National Women's College Basketball Correspondent at the Next. Thank you for making Lockdown Women's Basketball your first listen every day. We are free and available wherever you get your podcasts. And today's episode is brought to you by LinkedIn. LinkedIn jobs help you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash lockdown. NBA. You can follow me on Twitter at Missy Heidrich and be sure to follow the next at the next tubes and this podcast at Lockdown Women's Basketball. So last week we started marching across the country, waiting for conference women's basketball schedules to get released and highlighting some of what the regular season is going to look like and those most intriguing matchups. All the while, Team USA was wrapping up a gold medal at the 2022 FIBA World Cup. So today we'll talk golden hardware and the Pac-12, what what to watch for this season as they weather the storms of conference realignment and all the buzz that is there. Today I'm so happy to have with me Michelle Smith, veterans women's sports journalist with her finger on the pulse of the of the Pac-12 and so much more. All right, Michelle, it golden time, Team USA. 30 straight World Cup games that they have won, a 22-point win margin. It broke their own record from previous World Cup action. They beat China and take home the World Cup gold medal. Your thoughts, just what this team has looked like, and maybe is this the next generation of Team USA that we're starting to see? Yeah, and I mean, this was a big tournament, I think, for USA basketball, for the women's national team program. Because this is really the start of the new era, right? This is the, you know, we're moving past Sue and Diana and Sylvia Fowles and some of those stalwart players, right? You've got you've got young players who've not been in the national team program before. You've got, you know, you had a roster that had um, Benajah Laney and you had um, Kalia Hopper and you have, you know, Kelsey Plum who won a three by three, obviously, but this is really a new era for the program. And I feel like this was a statement tournament for them. I felt like they came in sort of viewing it that way, that this is, you know, that this is a new time for USA basketball, but doesn't change the dominance of the women's national team. I mean, when you watched, you know, Brianna Stewart out there for, you know, almost every minute, every time I looked up, you know, Stewie was doing something amazing, right? In Asia coming off of the championship and, you know, just the way that whole team is made up, but this is a new so the new era, the veterans on this team are new to being veterans on this team True. for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so I thought this was a really big statement tournament from them and the margins that they won by and the quality of play that they put out. Like, 
I just, I was really, really impressed by it. But I also thought that that was the point for them, for them to send the message to the world that, you know, we may not have Sue Bird and Diana Tarazi and Sylvia Fowles anymore, but we are still the best team in the world. And they wanted to prove a point. I think you're absolutely right. You know, I think it's really interesting. And as we've seen this kind of evolution of Team mm -hmm. USA, and as you said, t faces that people are used to seeing that haven't been there. But I also think that Cheryl Reeves is just sort of maybe a little bit different. She's approached this maybe with a different mindset, kind of now her team, her culture, a lot of what mm -hmm. she built and has built at Minnesota with the links in the professional ranks. It maybe has a little bit of a different feel just simply because that's those are the type of people she's used to dealing with every day. So this is not something where you got to make a college coach to professional transition. We're kind of trying to weave it there. This is just what she does every day, 365, brings that culture. And I think it seems like that might be what this where this is headed going forward for Team USA. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think that, the, you know, don't rule out the idea. I think that, you know, Team USA has always done a good job of fostering um, – fostering those college coaches though, right? I mean, obviously, you know, you went from Gino to Don and you've got player, you've got coaches sitting on the bench, you know, like Kara Lawson, you've had Adia Barnes come through Team USA, you know, like they're grooming those coaches, right? Those coaches are on those rosters for a reason. And, and but I, I do agree that I think, you know, Cheryl Reeves gets to have a different approach to this because she knows these players uh, in from a different context. These are professional that she is a professional coach and these are professional players and perhaps mm -hmm. she gets to approach this a little bit differently but I don't think the USA basketball is going to stop grooming their future head coaches through the college ranks because there are certainly more to choose from I mean you know there are 12 WNBA head coaches right and those coaches change and Cheryl's an established head coach in the league and one of the winningest coaches in the history of WNBA but um but yeah, I think that there's definitely sort of a different context under which Cheryl gets to coach this team. And I think there's a lot of folks who probably hope that it's also a more, after spending the last couple of cycles with Team USA, talking about who was excluded from the team, you know, we didn't have a lot, we didn't have any of those conversations in this round. This was yeah. about all of the new faces that were included. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and I think that's a really positive development for USA basketball as well. No, I think you're absolutely right. And it, it kind of goes to the idea of it, it's been the underlying current conversation that folks have been talking about is the exclusion of who's on the squad. And then you have to look at it and say, at some point in time, where's that new younger talent, the one that may be sustainable, that could be part of um, Team USA for multiple cycles going forward, right. not just coaches, but players, that that's incredibly important. I think a couple of those faces and maybe that new generation of Team USA comes out of what we saw in the WNBA finals. You know, you mm -hmm. had four players come from Vegas where you had right. Asia Wilson, Kelsey Plum, Chelsea Gray, and then Alyssa Thomas and Brianna Jones. They come from Connecticut. They literally came from the finals over to Australia, insert themselves into this lineup and were impact players from the minute they were able to get to Australia. Alyssa Thomas and Kelsey Plum were huge, yeah. huge for Team USA, yeah. both of them. I mean, you know, and, and they're not names that we're necessarily used to seeing on that stage. Um, you know, Kelsey with the three by three of that. But like, that's the that's how this program, you know, moves forward. And it says a lot about the talent level of the WNBA, the talent level of those championship teams. 
that this is the kind of worldwide impact that these players come in and they have. There's, we're not surprised by it, but it's great. I mean, you know, you're not nobody's going to be surprised that Kelsey Plum or Alyssa Thomas played well on the world stage, but yeah. it's really refreshing, right, yes. to be able to see them do it. And so I think it's just again part of this sort of new new moment for the U.S. women's national team. And I'm about it. <laughs> it was yeah. great. They well, played so well. And I think, you know, I heard the term, a, a couple of the players, and I think even the coaches said afterwards, you know, that they felt like they were on a mission, mm-hmm. that this was a statement scenario for them. Again, a lot mm-hmm. of new faces, new coaches, et cetera. But that China was going to be a formidable opponent. But then to be able to beat them by 22, a margin of which they beat their own record from a previous World right. Cup, I think you do have that statement game, that mission idea of just continuing to assert that the very best – women's basketball players are going to be part of and it's going to be team USA. Yeah. I agree. And China was and China played really really well and but and that game that championship game had such a um frenetic pace to it for a while. It was just I you know, I was watching it going this is exhausting like it was just it was so back and forth and then USA wears them down because of the depth, because of that talent it just was, you know, again, the USA is the best team in the world and they, those players are coming from the best league in the world and it shows by the time you get to the end of that gold medal game. Yeah. Well, and when you talk about some of the best players in the world, you know, one of those names that I know has been synonymous with the WNBA and with international basketball for Mm -hmm. years is Lauren Jackson. And I just Mm -hmm. thought, what a great story to have mm-hmm. her come back and play with the Opals, play for Australia in this World Cup. Not only did she go out with a bang, she goes out with 30 points as in that bronze medal mm-hmm. game. Maybe just your thought of seeing someone like that and sort of how they, um, what sort of impact that has both long-term for women's basketball in general on every stage. Mm-hmm. I think it, you know, I think when you watch, Lauren Jackson come back and be able to be that productive. When you watch player like Sue Bird play into her forties and continue to be able to be productive, Diana's certainly approaching that threshold as well, right? Like you see that these women, when they, you know, when they take good care of themselves, when they eat right, when they do, I mean, you know, and Sue and Diana will be the first to tell you, you know, that they're, that their extension of their careers into this point and their careers had entirely to do with, you know, nutrition and health and making sure they were taking care of their bodies. And for LJ, it was the same thing to see her come back and be that productive was, was completely joyful. I mean, it was, it was really, really fun. It was a great story. You know, obviously LJ's at the end and this was a moment for her to come back and have this sort of closure, perhaps that it felt like maybe she needed, um, that she didn't get before and a chance for everybody, especially in Australia at home to appreciate what she's done for the Opals and what she's done for sport in Australia. Um, But what happened with LJ feels a little bit more like a one-off, but it's also just a message that if you do this right, these women can extend their careers a really, really long way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's the fantastic part. And it just shows, it shows the depth and breadth of, I think the quality Mm -hmm. of, players and what you see on the international stage doesn't happen very often because we are usually looking for a world cup or the Olympics for that showcase. But I think we got it this year and a hardware haul for team USA. All right. In just a moment, we're going to talk about the changes coming to the PAC 12, how they're impacting women's basketball at UCLA and USC. 
and the latest on the league's realignment woes. But first, these days, every new potential hire can feel like a high stakes wager for your small business. You want it to be 100% certain that you have access to the best qualified candidates available. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the right people for your team faster and free. I know there hasn't been a time over the past few years where we all haven't made a connection just simply because of LinkedIn. So add your, you want to go online and create that free job post. And then you add your job and the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and who you'd like to hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. So LinkedIn jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash locked on NBA. That's linkedin.com slash locked on NBA to post your free job for free terms and conditions do apply. I am Missy Heidrich, and thank you again for making Locked On Women's Basketball your first listen every day. Make sure you check out the ultimate pro basketball preview starting October 10th, 10 days away, a six-episode extravaganza to get you ready for the NBA season. The local team experts and the NBA insiders of the Lockdown Podcast Network and Odyssey are all combining into one ultimate NBA preview. Starting October 10th, search for the Ultimate Pro Basketball Preview 2022 on your Odyssey app, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Michelle Smith, we have talked about World Cup, and you live out on that West Coast. You have you are ingrained each and every day in the world of all things Pac-12. So let's talk a little bit before we talk. We really dive into women's basketball. Let's just kind of talk about some of the realignment buzz. Never a dull moment out there in the Pac-12. Let's face it, there's something going on. Um, I know there's a lot of rumors uh, what maybe some of the next moves are going to be for the Pac-12. I thought it was very interesting um, at the beginning of the fall when football, college football was starting, the new commissioner to the Big 12 um, making a statement that their strategy is about going out west, not bashful about it, putting it Mm -hmm. out there, a lot of conversation. But one thing that struck me about two weeks ago, there's been some reporting that there was a letter provided to the University of California Board of Regents ahead of a closed door session to discuss UCLA's proposed move to the Big Ten. And it was put out by the Pac-12 commissioner himself. Maybe talk a little bit about where all of this sits today. We know it could change tomorrow. But what's the conversation out there on the West Coast as it relates to especially UCLA and this move to the Big Ten? Yeah, so UCLA is in a different position than USC in making this move. USC is a private university. They can do what they want. Um, UCLA is part of the UC system in California, and they are governed by a UC Board of Regents. And the everything I understand from the UC Board of Regents and having sat through a recent meeting as they had, they discussed this issue was that this move took the UC Board of Regents by surprise as well. Mm -hmm. And it's most relevant because of the financial impact that it potentially has on another UC school, which is Cal Berkeley. And so um, what the UC regents are weighing right now is what impact, what negative impact could 
or does UCLA's move to the Big Ten have on another UC school? And what do you do about that? Right. So is that a situation where the UC regents are in a position to say, no, UCLA, you can't move? Don't see that happening. That feels like a big mess. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also could be a financial restitution situation where UCLA is going to have to give some of its Big Ten money to Cal, undetermined amount, obviously, but to make up for the financial hit that Cal is going to take in particular because they're a fellow UC campus. So that's where UCLA and and Cal end up getting connected is because they're both in this system and because UCLA is moving and their move will have a material impact on Cal, what is the financial restitution to Cal in this situation? So I think that's where that conversation is centered. I don't really see a scenario where the UC regents tell UCLA they can't move. I feel like that's just um, a long court battle and a long, it's just a big hairy mess. But USC is not tethered by that. USC is not tethered to a university system where they have to do that. So USC is doing its thing. Right. Um, and UCLA is just not quite as free to do that without having to weigh what it means for a fellow UC school. Um, you know, and again, this isn't going to apply to the Stanfords or the Arizona schools or the Washington schools. And, and we can talk about, for example, Washington State and Oregon State and all of these scenarios which right now don't include the Cougars and the Beavers. Yeah. Um, you know, these potential scenarios, you know, we've got the Big 12 talking, you know, there were rumors the Big 12 is going to sweep up some of those Southern schools, you know, the Arizonas and Colorado and Utah, and that the Big 10 might take Cal and Stanford and Washington and, or, you know, but, you know, if I'm Washington State and I'm Oregon State right now, I'm wondering where that leaves us. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of this stuff, hopefully in the next few weeks is going to start to make itself clear. I've heard, you know, the Big 12 still talking about wanting to move west. I've also heard that the Big 12 um, presidents and the university presidents and folks on that level aren't excited about being the ones to cause the dissolution of the Pac-12, which is a conference that's been around since, you know, the late 1800s, right? And that's a difficult thing. And it's a really hard thing for, you know, somebody like me in this part of the world to process too, that a scenario where there would be no Pac-12. And it's crazy. Very strange. It's also, to me, a huge impact on the Olympic sports. If you think about the Pac-12's Olympic sport legacy and women's sports legacy, you know, I, I, you can argue about football. We know this is about football. We know this is about 10 games in the fall with football programs that may or may not, by the way, be their huge money makers for their universities. We won't. That's a topic for a new day. Um, but, you know, but the Pac-12 has been, you know, a, a, just an absolute funnel to our Olympic sports and to our women's and to our major women's sports programs and that, and to lose the PAC 12 and that legacy, you know, that's pretty devastating to think about the possibility of that happening, Um, which takes us to the women's basketball season. Right. And the PAC 12 being what, you know, one of the best conferences in the country, no, no conferences set more team to the final four in the last 10 years. No, no conferences, you know, they may not have been necessarily the best conference every single year, but, you know, seven of the top 10 players in this year's recruiting class are going to Pac-12 schools. I've got like 11 of the top 25 players going to Pac-12 schools this year. Like the Pac-12 is still a ridiculously relevant, important conference in women's basketball. And 
losing USC and UCLA, who are, by the way, are not two of the teams that have gone to the final four in the last 10 years, but, you know, USC with its own legacy, UCLA, who's always been such a good program and those coaches being two of the biggest cheerleaders for the PAC 12 that you could possibly have. There's Corey Close at UCLA never misses a moment to boost up the PAC 12. Lindsay Gottlieb obviously coached at Cal and now is at USC and is, sort of synonymous with that Pac-12 style of coaching and that Pac-12 mindset about coaching that really, you know, that kind of that professorial cerebral, you know, almost in that Tara Vanderveer mold where, you know, and, you know, where it's not about histrionics or bombast or whatever. And, and she was, and she's building something as well. So the loss is huge. The loss of the Southern California market is huge for the Pac-12 women's basketball with so many strong players coming out of Southern California. And, so it causes a lot of it causes a lot of tumult. Um, we know, for example, that there are now two sets of meetings going on in the Pac-12. There are the meetings in which the Pac, the UCLA and USC are included, and then there are meetings in which they are not because okay. they're not going to be part of the conference and the right. conversations about the conference moving forward. That's weird. I mean, it is what it is. But yes. it's a strange dynamic when you say, okay, so the Pac-12 coaches are going to meet. And in the case of women's basketball, Corey and Lindsay, why don't you guys, you know, step out of the room because we're going to, you know, talk, talk about, about 2024 what, right. or, or how we're going to schedule moving forward or whatever it is. Like the whole thing just introduces, I think, a level of weirdness to it, for lack of a better term, that everybody's contending with right now. You're absolutely right. Now, you wrote a fantastic article. So for everybody, I want you to go to the next hoops.com find Michelle's article because you had a chance to talk to both Corey Close and Lindsay Gottlieb at UCLA and USC respectively a little bit about you know what this looks like for them how they're approaching it maybe just give us give us a snapshot of what how they're looking forward but then also understanding you've got to stay in the present because they've got two years worth of basketball in this league that they've got to play yeah, I mean, and both of them were really thoughtful about it, which doesn't surprise me. That's just who they are. You know, um, Corey said, basically, I get why people are mad at us. I understand what the implications are this are for the conference. I get it. Um, but both and, you know, and Lindsay, you know, Lindsay was like, I'm, you know, I get it. And I'm intrigued by the challenge of preparing for new teams. But both of them said what they need to do is advocate for their student athletes. Because one of the conversations we've had all along here is, you know, while this is a football move all the way, the impact on sports like basketball, I mean, even other sports like baseball and volleyball and the travel expectations on student athletes that travel more frequently than football teams do and for longer periods of time. And how long are you going to stay back east? And how long are you going to pull these student athletes out of classes? And how are you going to travel? And so, you know, Lindsay talked about, you know, Corey and her being in a position to advocate for, for example, you know, charter flights. There's a lot of Big Ten money out there. They, you know, they're going to demand charters and say, we want to set our schedule for how we're going to travel with these athletes. Um, you know, they're going to talk about their scheduling and how they can schedule in bunches. They're going to want to schedule their Pac-12, their former Pac-12 foes in the non-conference season and minimize the amount of travel during the non-conference, right. um, which also is appealing for recruits. Because again, a lot of recruits that have come to the Pac-12 have come in the last 10 years or so because of that promise of getting to stay home, be seen on the Pac-12 network, you know, that whole, you know. Yeah. Right. And so if you're traveling to, you know, if you're traveling cross country every other weekend during the regular, you know, during your conference season, that makes it a little harder. So I think Corey and Lindsay are in a position right now 
knowing the, that the money's coming to say, you're going to invest this money in making sure that this situation for our student athletes is, is right. Mm -hmm. And these are not, you know, USC and UCLA are two top academic institutions. They're student athletes. You know, these are serious academic schools. Yes. So, you know, removing those students from the classroom for long periods of time ultimately doesn't benefit anybody. And so I think they're going to be big advocates. And I think they also understand, though, that they've got two more years in this conference and they're both, you know, Corey in some ways is rebuilding it um, a little bit, but she's got a huge recruiting class coming in and Kiki Rice and and that group and a lot of expectation. And, and Lindsay's really rebuilding the USC program. And they've got a couple of years to do that against, you know, some of the best competition in the country. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think I think one of the, the terms that will be used over the course of the next few years as this continues to move forward is accountability mm -hmm. and make sure that these institutions, the athletic departments are held accountable in how they figure out the best way to do this for the student athlete. And if not, there's going to be a lot of pushback and, and there will be not only coaches that can be that advocate, but you're going to see a lot of student athletes that are going to be their own advocates as well. And I applaud that because I think that that's important. Student athletes are empowered right now. They have a lot of reason to be empowered between NIL and the transfer portal and that. Yeah. And, and they're just not afraid to speak up. I think there was, you know, a long time where student athletes, the student athlete voice was, you know, it was just, they were, they were intimidated to say what they thought or whatever. And we're not in that era. And so if this isn't working for the student athletes in some way, shape or form, if they're exhausted, if somebody gets hurt because they're tired, if somebody's, you know, struggling academically because they don't have enough time in class, we're going to hear about it. We're going to yeah. hear about it pretty quickly, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it, it's going to put the Big Ten in a position and anybody else who's going to do these realignments, it's going to put them in a position to understand that, you know, this they have to take care of the student athletes. Yeah, you better have a plan in place. This can't just look great on paper. There are going to have to be some things that have to become operational. And that's not only just their everyday health and wellness, but then you talk about things like schedules. So that mm -hmm. is a perfect segue because we are mm -hmm. going to talk Pac-12 regular season conference schedules in just a moment because there are going to be some fantastic games and highlights for everybody to keep their eyes on. But first, we've got to talk about betonline.net. It is your number one source for football betting information this season. I live in the Kansas City metro area, so there were a lot of folks looking at that Chiefs-Tampa game last night, and it was very intriguing. Find all the latest player developments, team matchups, news, podcasts, and in-depth articles and analysis on every game you can find. And as always, Bet Online remains your continued source for all your sport wagering information with live betting and up-to-the-minute scores for every sport out there. The fastest and easiest way to check in on all your favorite games and events. That includes the MLB. The wild card chase starts this weekend. MMA, boxing, golf, all of the above. Head to betonline.net to use your mobile device to learn more. BetOnline is where the game starts. All right, Michelle, we've talked a little bit about UCLA. We've talked about USC. It's really hard, I think, to talk about the Pac-12. And I think maybe the top two teams in this league, as normal and has been the last couple of years, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be Stanford and Arizona. Mm -hmm. um, I think, and I always like to say I have a motto. If you want to be the best, you've got to beat the best. All right. right. So you know that Stanford two years ago, they win a national championship. They get themselves almost all the way back to that pinnacle again last season. 
but that's vintage Char Vanderveer. That's what she does. And that it is not necessarily about a rebuild. It's about a reload. And I know that she lost some um, familiar faces, a lot of experience off that squad, but she's bringing in the number one player in the nation out of high school. You've got players like Haley Jones and Cameron Brink coming back. I mean, how do you bet? No pun intended. How do we bet against yeah, I mean, Stanford, I think, is going to be the clear favorite in the conference. But, you know, but this is a really competitive conference. And like you said, Arizona, Oregon, you yeah. um, you know, last year, Colorado and Utah made big jumps last year and both ended up in the NCAA tournament, right? You've got programs like Washington State. Like, there are no easy outs anymore. Pac-12 used to be sort of like you got through the first five or six teams and then the quality of play, you know, or the quality of the teams dropped off pretty precipitously. And that's not what we're looking at anymore. Yeah. Um you know, so you've got you've got a, a tough schedule, but you know you do. You know, Stanford does have Lauren Betts coming in. Um, you know, they've got Haley Jones and Cameron Brink, two of the probably top five or six players in the country. Come, you know, for the year, and, you know, so they're going to be a really, really, you know, they're going to be a, an overwhelming favorite. But I'm interested in, you know, Pac-12's done some scheduling. I know we were going to talk about the schedule. Um, you know, Stanford's going to play South Carolina in November. And that's going to be one of the bigger non-conference games that everybody's going to circle on the schedule, right? Everybody's going to want to see, you know, it's, you know, those mat those rematches and those matchups and Don versus Tara, which we always love. And um, so that's going to be great. And, but I'm interested in what the PAC 12 done with the schedule. So last year they voted on a 20 game schedule and, and then they reconsidered and decided they were going to stick with the 18 game schedule which I think is smart. Um, 20 conference games is a lot. It takes a couple of non-conference games away from you. Um, and so I think I like the 18-game schedule. The other interesting thing that they've done is they've separated the rivalry games. So what the Pac-12 was doing was having the rivalry games play in the same week and they would go back to back. So the Stanford and Cal rivalry game would go Thursday, Sunday, or it would go, you know, or Friday, Sunday, but they would play each other back to back. Right. And this year they've decided to separate those games and they're allowing those teams to schedule. So most of those rivalry games, the first game is in December, actually, yeah. while they're still playing non-conference games. But yeah. they're going to play that rivalry game and then come back and then play them again, I think, in probably mostly in January. But they're going to split those rivalry games for those teams, which I think is fun. I think it gives you that little taste of Pac-12 competition in December, even as people are sort of still sort of closing. I mean, Stanford's going to play Cal before they play Tennessee. so. Yeah. Right. Like, right. So that's, um, we'll see where we get. And it, and, right. that, and I think that's the good part about putting some of these games early, as you said, right out of the gate in early December, it's Oregon at Oregon state at Oregon, December 11th, mm -hmm. the Washington, Washington state, those rivalry games, UCLA at USC is mid December. And then Cal at Stanford is December 23rd, right before Christmas. But the way that the PAC 12 has set it up is that everybody has quote unquote, a travel buddy. So they move mm -hmm. together. Yes. Sunday matchups. But with that said, it also kind of gives you a, a look at teams maybe earlier than we would have thought. But then also, is the non-comp is their non-conference schedule just setting them up to be a little bit more of a net booster? And then are we going to take our lumps in league? But as you said, I don't think there's a lot of easy outs. There's a couple teams in this league that I think maybe hit harder by the portal than others. Mm -hmm. One of them, I think, is Oregon State. Now, there has been some, yeah. there's been a lot of movement on this roster up there in um, Corvallis, and I think it's interesting. But no no Jones, no Kennedy Brown in the post, a lot of new faces. 
and they're going to have to go right out of the gate and play at Oregon on December 11th. Yeah. Maybe your thoughts on the Oregon teams and, and what's going to be their long-term, can they sustain it throughout the course of the Pac-12 season? Yeah, you know, both of the Oregon teams seem to be a place where the transfer portal is active, right? Yeah. Like, so Kelly Graves has lost a few kids and gained a few kids through the transfer portal. You know, he certainly, ha you know, he, and, and the same thing with Scott Ruick at Oregon State, you know, they've got, you know, he still has Talia Von Ohoffen and, you know, kind of as their guard. And she's basically, I think, a sophomore now, but is in her third season because she had, because she was an early entry during the COVID year. Um they're going to be Oregon state, I think was the one last year in particular, probably took a little bit more of a hit and a little bit longer to gel because they had some transfers even the year before, yeah. but, but I always feel like Oregon state's going to come together and it may not be in time for that Oregon game, but you might see a different Oregon state team in early February than you're going to see, for example, in mid December, um, you know, Oregon's still super talented. Oregon, you know, as we talk about the top couple of teams, I think we're remiss if we're not including Oregon in that group with Sedona yeah. Prince and yeah. the guards, um, you know, Tahina Pow Pow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're just, they're that's a good team. Um, yeah. And so, you know, putting that together, I think Oregon is going to be certainly in the mix in the Pac-12 and at the top of the standings in the Pac-12. But Watching that early, you're going to see how quickly or not quickly teams are coming together after putting a new a lot of new players in place. But you can talk to everybody, and everybody's got – I think USC's got eight new players. I think yeah. – I just talked to Natasha Dare, who's replacing Charlie Turnerthorne at Arizona State. She's got six new players in the last two months that have come into her program. There are a lot of teams that are bringing in a lot of new people because of the transfer portal and because you've got freshman recruiting classes and, and all of that. And so um, – I mean, it'll be interesting. And then you still have, you still have players that have an extra year with the COVID year who may or may not decide to take it and how that's sort of impacting roster numbers and roster and, and choices on who's on your roster and things, because we're just going to get to the tail end of having those players who can elect for the fifth year if they choose because of the COVID year. So, um, you know, we've got the rosters are really, really interesting. I mean, even, you know, even a team like Colorado, that did so, you know, did so well. And then they lost quite a few players in the transfer portal after having a really, really good year. So it is, you know, the transfer portal uh, takes and it gives. And so we'll see. We yeah. will see how yeah. much you give. Right? I mean, you know, you get, you, you, you lose yeah. and then you gain. And so we'll see well, what we get. I think that you're absolutely right because like I look at a team like Arizona and as we said, they're going to be at home. Their first Pac-12 game is December 29th. They have Arizona State, that rivalry game. And I look at Arizona, they've got Esmeri Martinez from West Virginia, Lauren Fields coming in from Oklahoma State. Now they lost some others, but it's replaced. And that's really what this is all about. And I do think that there are coaches out there that are making more of an effort to say, all right, I need to maybe find a transfer that could give me a couple years of eligibility. Right. One hit wonders are awesome. A super senior, fantastic. Mm -hmm. But long term stability of your roster might need to be a player that could come in and give me a couple years rather than just one. You mentioned Colorado, seventh year for JR Payne. They have seven players back for newcomers. They were in the tournament last year. They also went on a 10 day European trip to Spain, mm -hmm. which is as though those are the kinds of things that kind of run under the radar. And I think coaches say, you know what, if I got a lot of new faces and I know I'm going to run the juggernaut of the Pac-12, mm -hmm. I need some extra time with my kids. I think she did that and took them overseas and they had some success and some opportunity to gel. 
Yeah, we hear a lot about those overseas trips and that opportunity to practice early, put your team together early, have them bond early, that ends up working out really, really nicely for some teams. I mean, they obviously don't get to, they get to do this every four years, but, you know, the teams that get to do this, and particularly a team in transition, um, it can be really, really important for them. I in Colorado and Utah together as tra as buddies in the travel schedule. I mean, it's really, really interesting trip now, I think, within the Pac-12, because I think it didn't used to be a trip that you worried about. If you were, you know, if you were one of the top teams in the conference, going to Colorado and Utah wasn't necessarily a trip that you had circled as this trip could be trouble, right? But but now I think it can be. And you've got altitude, you've got all kinds of other things, and they're not they're not connected. It's a two-flight trip, like some of these trips. You know, if you come into the Bay Area, you don't have to get on a plane again. Um, if you go to LA, you don't have to get on a plane again. If you go to Arizona, you don't have to get on a plane again. But if you go to Washington, Washington State, that's a two-flight trip. If yeah. you go to Colorado and Utah, that's a two-flight trip. That Those things make a difference um, in the travel schedule. And I think suddenly Colorado, the Colorado-Utah trip for most of these teams is going to look a little bit different this year than it did the last few years because I think these are both two really nice programs. Utah is, you know, Lynn Roberts did such a great job last year. They just surged at the end of the year and were really, really impressive. So suddenly that mountain trip looks a little more daunting. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is, is that there is no easy out. As you said, I think this is a, a league that continues to elevate its stature, um, continues to rise among the very best. And as you see it time, year in and year out, it's going to be competitive games in non-con and very competitive games in conference. It all kicks off December 11th is be the very first Pac-12 game. The last weekend of regular season Pac-12 games is going to be the weekend of February 23rd to the 25th. So it starts in December all the way to the end of February, and there's not going to be a lot of days off in the Pac-12. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on with me today. You are a vat of information that everybody needs to know. Tell everybody where they find you on a daily basis. And I know it is with us at thenexthoops.com too. Yeah, I'm really excited to be with The Next. I'm excited to contribute. I'm excited to be with this group of great young writers. And um, and so I'm going to be at The Next. I'm also on pack12.com. Once the season gets rolling, you can find me on Twitter. You got my Twitter handle here. And then most days you'll find me down at San Jose State doing my day job. So <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of everything. So if you have a yeah. hard time, Bonnie Michelle, it's not because she's not busy. It's just she's got way too many things going on. <laughs> thank you so much. And I want to thank everybody for making Locked On Women's Basketball your first listen every day. Please go find us at The Next Hoops and at Locked On Women's Basketball for this podcast at thenext.com. That's where you're going to find us as well. You can find me, Missy Heidrich, there and on Twitter. And I'll also be here on Mondays, which I am super excited about. So please join me here every Monday to talk everything from college hoops and all you need to know about women's basketball and come back all this week for more episodes. It's going to be college basketball news and notes, wrapping up the 2022 FIBA World Cup and moves across the WNBA because we know they are coming, including some head coach hirings. Those are going to be right around the corner. Now, make your second listen, Locked On Fantasy Basketball. Josh Lloyd hosts the number one daily fantasy basketball show on the planet. It's free and available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, everybody. Join us all the time right here on Lockdown Women's Basketball. We'll take care of you and keep you up to date.